0: I was on a Zoom call with a whole group of CEOs in Singapore and the CEO of a big corporation who's honestly, truly made massive changes in checking out the ethics of his supply chain and where it came from and the wages that people are paid. And he's saying, Jane, there were three reasons for my company to change. First seeing the writing on the wall, that we cannot go on exploiting the finite natural resources of the planet because if we do, that's the end of our business. And he said, secondly, people are getting more aware and they are demanding a more ethical way of doing business. And he said, you know, people aren't buying our products because we are not producing them in an ethical way. But he said, the thing that really pushed me to make this major change was my daughter. And he said, she came back from school one day and she said, daddy, what you're doing? Is it harming the environment? Is it going to hurt me when I grow up? And he said, that got straight to my heart. You gotta feel it, you gotta get that teared up feeling. And Yes, I, I've got to change. Then you have to work out how you change. That's what our intellect is for. And there's so many like that. I dream of seeing a greener and happier planet. I want people to care more about climate change
1: because it affects us our wisdom and the lessons we learn. I aspire
0: to change the world too because of the hope she the gave Earth is She devoted her life together. To this. We her life. Together we can save the world. Together we can. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I get to speak to someone I deeply admire, Rhett Butler. Rhett is an award-winning journalist and the founder and CEO of Mongabay, a nonprofit environmental media organization. I've served on the advisory board for Monga Bay for some years now. The Jane Goodall Institute often contributes to Monga Bay for interviews and stories, and the two organisations work together to amplify stories that turn hope into action. Beyond Monga Bay, Rhett has advised a range of organisations and institutions, from news outlets to philanthropic foundations to development agencies and his writing and photography have appeared in hundreds of publications. As someone who is constantly considering the best way to communicate some of the most pressing and critical stories of our time, Rhett is no stranger to creating an effective marriage between truth and hope, something that's incredibly important to me and I'm so excited to speak with him about. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Rhett Butler. Rhett, I I feel very sad that we're not actually sitting together, that we're communicating um, in this strange new Zoom world that we live in today. But I'm really excited to welcome you to this Hopecast and excited to talk to you even from the distance of UK to the United States. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to the day, hopefully, sometime soon, where we can uh, be face to face again.
0: So, Rhett, I've actually been wanting to talk to you for quite a long time because what seems to be going on in the world today is that so many people are losing hope. Yes, we need the media to talk about all the horrible things that are happening to the environment and socially and politically, but If it's only doom and gloom that's out there in the media, of course people are losing hope. I mean, what's going on is terrible, and we do need to know about it. But don't you think the media should spend more time sharing those stories of hope?
1: Yeah, I do. I think, you know, one of the challenges that journalists have is there's a bias towards focusing on problems rather than solutions. And I think that that has been kind of one of the fundamental issues that we're facing today. And so... I think part of it is focusing on these tangible solutions and actions that people can take at home. So, you know, reminding people that, yeah, there are these big global problems, but solutions always start locally. And, you know, here are a few things that you can do to, to actually start to make a difference locally and and collectively that can bubble up into something much, much greater. And I think JGI's work and um, Roots and Shoots are so many examples of hopeful, positive things that can be inspiration for us all, I, I think that collectively the media could do a much better job, at, including Mongabay, sort of highlighting those those stories and giving us, giving us hope, because um, really that's critical.
0: What gets me all the time is we know what to do, but if people don't get together now and take action, this window of time we have to slow down climate change and biodiversity loss, it's not a huge window of time, is
1: it? No, it's really not. And, uh, I feel like it's, you know, it's getting shorter every day as we see the compounding impacts of climate change and degradation and the other issues we're facing. So part of this whole effective storytelling is, is giving people something real and meaningful that they can do in their lives to really make a difference about the issues they care about. That's kind of our role as storytellers to provide sort of that initial step and impetus and sort of push for people to then take action. Facts can only go so far in persuading people. So you really need that combination of a strong factual basis and then a really good narrative that inspires people to care you know, about the world around them, but also create a connection between the audience and the subject. Some of these communities have overcome such incredible odds to have this real impact. There's a good example out of Malaysian Borneo in Sarawak. So there's this effort to create a peace park, an indigenous-led peace park but the incredible thing is, is that now like the International Tropical Timber Organization has officially endorsed it. The Sarawak government is is talking about it. And so this thing like, which seemed like such a pipe dream, you know, such a ridiculous idea is now very close to becoming a reality. You know, I think also, you know, part of the role of Mongabay is, you know, highlighting those stories. And, you know, sometimes the journalism can sort of help create an enabling environment for, you know, supporting that change. And so that's, I mean, that's one reason why I love what I do is that we can see that, you know, this journal can actually lead to or to, can contribute to, to impact on the ground as well. Yeah, I am so,
0: so impressed by the journalists who risk their lives to talk about what's going on that is kind of hidden by big corporations and all the corruption that goes on and the whistleblowers, too, for that matter. I think the hope part of it there is that there are people willing to risk their jobs and their lives in speaking out. And that's that's hopeful for the human race, for the future of our planet. I quite often find myself thinking back to what was almost the beginning of the environmental movement, which was Rachel Carson with Silent Spring. And what she tackled, even up to the very end when she had cancer, in exposing the effect of DDT on the environment and the weakening of the shells of the birds of prey and and she won that's a, a story which maybe a lot of people today don't even know but i i remember it because I was living through it
1: yeah I mean it's it is amazing I mean i just think about so much of the action is now done remotely um, I mean so you have you know these critical environmental defenders on the front lines who are putting their their lives at risk but people can, can support in other ways. So even if you're not on the front lines of, you know, in the Congo Basin or something like that, you can support those efforts at home by, you know, things like, you know, satellite imagery or, or using your voice to, to raise awareness or, you know, pestering your representatives in Congress about, you know, legal actions or regulations that can help protect and support these communities or, or help, help save the forest. So I think, you know, what it does is, I think mean, that example just shows that you can help make a difference even if you aren't on the front lines, which I think is really important.
0: What originally drove you to start Bay? What was it? Was there a particular moment, a particular incident?
1: Yeah, so Bay was born out of my love for nature and wildlife. So I had the great fortune of having a mother who was a travel agent and a father who traveled a lot for business. So I had opportunities to go to places that most people don't. So say like instead of going to Disneyland we would go to Venezuela. And I had a special affinity for reptiles and amphibians and I kind of felt that the most interesting reptiles and amphibians were in the rainforest. So I would always try to get my parents to take me to the rainforest and I I thankfully had a couple opportunities. And so the thing that really sort of took me from just being someone who appreciated nature to like understanding the fact that there were problems in the environment was when I was 12, I went to Eastern Ecuador and we stayed with a fairly traditional indigenous community near Yasuni national park. And I had an amazing time, you know, meeting the kids my age in the village and going out looking for frogs at night and things like that. I came back uh, to California, where I lived, and a few months after I was there, there was a story in the local newspaper about this huge oil spill that had happened on the Rio Napo, upriver from where I'd been. And so what that meant is the area that I just visited was now coated in oil. And so all I could think about is what had happened to my friends in the forest and the animals. The thing that really kind of spurred me to like that next level was um, when I was 17, I went to um, Malaysian Borneo, and I had an incredible experience in the rainforest there including a, a moment where um, a wild uh, male uh, orangutong passed you know, within like 30 feet of me, kind of paused, watched me for a few minutes and then kept going. It was kind of like that magical experience. But I, I came back from that forest and I kept in correspondence with the scientists there. And uh, several months later, the forest was pulped to make paper. And now it's an oil palm plantation. And so once that happened I decided I need to try to do something to raise awareness about this, and so I began writing a book about rainforests when I was uh, starting at the university. I sent the book out to publishers. One came back to me and said they were interested in publishing it, but sort of later in the process, they said, okay, well, we'd like to publish it, but we don't have money to put pictures in it. Like we can run some grayscale images, but it'll just be a textbook. And to me, that really defeated the person what I was trying to do, which was convey the beauty of rainforests and why they should be saved. And so I thought, well, I didn't write this book for money. I wrote it for impact. And so it Instead, I decided to put it on the internet so people could read it for free, and I decided to name it Manga Bay, which is derived from this um, the name of an island off Madagascar, which is this like beautiful island which is covered with rainforest, had amazing reptiles and amphibians, had lemurs, was surrounded by coral reefs. And so I put the book up on the internet, and then you know a few years later, I quit my job to pursue my passion, and you know that was Manga Bay. It's been quite a journey.
0: What's so important, Reds? that you're doing with Mongabay and we're doing to give these young people hope. Because if our youth loses hope, that's the end. We're finished. Because if you don't have hope, you fall into apathy and do nothing. And you've got two very small children in your life. So for you, this is really, really important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know really important for, for really all of us. But I mean, the younger generation, I think, has a lot... A lot to be upset about. Um, you know, they've been put in this situation by my generation and older generations and being able to harness sort of that, that uh, you know, I think in some cases it's rage, but, you know, disappointment and turn it into productive action, I think is, is what a lot of young people are doing now. They're going to determine the future that, that, you know, we want to have. And so people need to be engaged. And, you know,
0: obviously young people today know far more about the environmental problems than I was taught when I was young. I mean, we just were trying to get through World War II. And it was World War II in the aftermath that created some of the the beginning of the deforestation, because there wasn't enough wood forests and woods in Europe to rebuild Europe after the devastation of World War II. And I went to a meeting of the Tropical Hardwood Association, and I talked about the forest and everything. And some of these guys were actually in tears, but one of them decided that he would make change. He was so shocked and so saddened and so horrified. And so apparently when you're in a big logging company, this is a European logging company, they have a code of conduct as to the size of tree you can cut and the distance of part of trees, and that you then leave this part of the forest to recover and you go somewhere else. But he added, after talking with me, a code of conduct for the animals, so that he said, okay, if we find chimpanzees or gorillas or something like that, we leave that part of the forest and go somewhere else. And that was because I told stories about the chimpanzees and how they lived and all the rest of it. So again, you know, I didn't point fingers at them, I didn't tell them they were horrible. I just talked about the time I'd spent in the rainforest and how I had this sense of spiritual connection and, you know, how I felt that all these different plant and animal species were sort of woven together in like a beautiful living tapestry a species becomes extinct in that tapestry, that ecosystem. And it's like pulling a thread from the ecosystem. And because everything is interconnected, the more threads you pull out, it eventually the ecosystem will hang in tatters and collapse.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, what you illustrate there is like a critical point in storytelling, which is really creating that connection between an audience and the subject matter everyone has their voice and you know can make decisions about what they do in their lives. So maybe there's small things they can do you know, to, to have an impact.
0: Well, I guess we can all do small things, can't we? And some of us can do bigger things. You and me, Red, we can go shopping and we can look at a product and we can actually ask in the making, did it harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals? Is it cheap because of unfair wages? And we can afford to buy something that might be costing a little bit more, but was made ethically. But if you're living in poverty, you can't make that decision. You're going to cut down the last trees because you've got to find some new land to grow food for your family. So alleviating poverty is absolutely key.
1: Yeah, I mean, creating incentives to help local people protect and safeguard their lands it was a very powerful tool for, you know, achieving conservation outcomes. So, I mean, if we look at where most, you know, wildlife and wild lands are located in the world these days, it's in places where there are indigenous and local communities. And there's a reason why those forests are still standing. Whereas, you know, like in Europe, the United States, there are far fewer indigenous peoples, uh, the, the, you know, forests and other wild areas have been converted. And so, you know, I think, that's one of the really important trends in conservation right now is the growing recognition of the contributions that local indigenous peoples are making towards climate and biodiversity objectives, basically. And so I think stories like that are you know really important to get out there.
0: And you know, I know in Tanzania, at Gombe, the local people did early burning. And then along come conservationists, not me, by the way, not not our group, but others saying, no, we, we mustn't do this. We've got, to, you know, we've got to leave the forest intact. We mustn't touch anything. We mustn't do early burning. So what happens? Enormous fires. It's very hard to put them out. And what I love right now are the rewilding programs that are going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think that the uh, rewilding is, is you know, a very exciting area in, in the conservation space. And it's really going... You know, it's, it's all around the world now. It's, you know, it's in Europe, it's in Latin America. You know, there's been this big push lately for, you know, restoration and tree planting projects. And I think that there is so much attention being paid to the idea of, well, if we're going to be restoring these landscapes, we actually need to be bringing in native species and, you know, thinking about the biodiversity aspects so and not just, you know, like the carbon accounting aspect, but, you know, what were the species that were here and how can we sort of help turn around this ecosystem and all the ecosystem services that are associated with it and create sustainable livelihoods.
0: You know, I get pretty frustrated with all these tree planting where people just stick a sapling in the ground and that's it. It needs to be indigenous, needs to be planted in the right place, the right soil, the right time of year. As you say, it needs to think about the biodiversity. And uh, it's got to be looked after. You can't just dump it and leave it. If you're a big company and you're putting out masses of CO2 into the environment, and then you say, well, I'm going to plant so many trees, and that will be a carbon credit. So I can go on producing emissions because I go on planting trees. That's not right. We've got to stop relying on fossil fuels.
1: Yeah, I mean I think one of the reasons that I'm optimistic and hopeful is that there is this energy transition that's happening right now that's I think occurring much faster than most people expected. So shifting power production away from those legacy fuels whether it's coal or natural gas or, you know, gasoline and moving towards wind and solar, which are just, you know, incredible renewable resources. I mean, there used to be the model of fortress conservation where you would you know, create a park and then you'd put guards around it and kick people out of the land. And you know that was probably something that was very common until maybe even twenty years ago. But that's changing now, and so you sort of see this sort of like major shift that's also occurring with conservation that you see in energy production. And so I think it's exciting to see that when there are solutions that are that are viable and work well, they can be taken up very quickly.
0: Wouldn't you agree? Though? Certainly, it's true in the UK. True in the U.S., that the whole section of society has been deliberately kept undereducated. So now they're angry, and they think things aren't fair, and that anger turns into, you know, violent demonstrations and terrorism too.
1: I, I mean, I think a, one major problem is that a lot of people have been deliberately misled. And so if we look at like what the fossil fuel industry did for so long about denying climate change or saying it's not as bad as people say it is, you know, I think that that sort of messaging is very damaging long term. And so I think another thing that's happened is, you know, while we've talked a lot about individual action and why that's important, there is a lot of, I guess, responsibility being put on the individual And in cases where people may not have access to good information or stuck in these information bubbles, they may not have the ability to make, you know, to, to make informed decisions. And so that sort of highlights the importance of sort of like the higher level action where governments have a role. So if products available on the shelves are all, you know, responsible or sustainable, then the decision making on like an uninformed individual isn't isn't around sustainability anymore. It's around what color do I like or something like that. So if you can take sort of that sustainability question out of, out of decision making because everything is sustainable, it can help kind of get at that root issue of of some people being underinformed. You know that that's kind of like I guess the long term solution to this. But in the shorter term, you know, individuals who are informed can help drive that higher level policy action through their voices, their wallets, and how they vote.
0: But I've been so impressed by Mongabay for so long. And I know that you have a team of people investigating news stories. I don't know in how many countries now, but an awful lot of the world. And I suppose there's always a balance between telling all the horrors that are going on and balancing it so that people don't get so depressed that they give up. Because if we give up now, we're doomed. How do you weave that in to the stories you tell?
1: We kind of do it by story by story, but we also have sort of overarching themes that we report on. So, for example, we have what we call a special reporting project that looks at Indigenous life conservation. Um, That's happening right now. And so what that is, is we're committing to do a set of stories that looks at this issue area. And by having sort of uh, this you know, set of stories that's pre-announced, we can sort of, you know, build like a story arc, like, you know, we're, we're going to focus on certain geographies, but also understanding examples of, you know, like success stories. So like here are five or 10 projects around the world, and here's some common elements to each one of these successful projects. And so, you know, that kind of builds um, an understanding of, of kind of what works with these projects and maybe, you know, what doesn't or what, what can we learn from it? And so we do try to encourage our editors to, you know, to probe these stories. Like, you know, what, is there some upside here or is there an example of an organization that's doing really good work to try to, you know, address this challenge. And one of the things at that Mongabay that's sort of enabled us to do this is we've um, built out a network of journalists all around the world. So we have um, currently it's probably around six or 700 contributing journalists in about 80 countries. And, There's a lot of value in this because uh, we can do very local stories, but then by the nature of the network being global, it can bubble up and do kind of these very high level stories as well by, you know, taking taking information from, you know, all these different countries.
0: Rhett, has there been a change? Is what you do helping to make more of the media share the good stories as well as the bad stories?
1: Well, so I think that sometimes you can have a bad story that results in a good outcome. So there's something that's being done that's destructive, but then covering it can then lead to you know, the activity stopping or people being empowered. And so back in 2014, there was a company that had an initial public offering in London. It's called United Cacao. And um, it portrayed itself as a pure play cacao company at a time when cacao prices were going up. And so cacao is used for making chocolate, just to clarify. So they they had this story where they were, you know, working with local people and they were sustainable and producing this commodity that everyone loves. Mongabay was monitoring Global Forest Watch and we were looking specifically for evidence of deforestation that was occurring. And we saw these, uh, you know, what, what show up as pink polygons uh, appearing in, in the, in Peru, which is the Western Amazon, which is the most biodiverse part of the Amazon rainforest. And so we started to dig into it. We had an investigative reporter that went there. And it turned out that it was this company that just had the IPO that had been clearing a highly biodiverse rainforest, you know, in the Amazon. And the way that we knew that is we could see the change happening over time with the satellite data. There are also scientists doing really great work documenting, you know, before the the forest clearance happened and after. So um, a friend of mine had flown the area in his airplane and mapped it with very high resolution satellite uh, uh, imagery, which showed the biodiversity, like the number of tree, the, the, the specific tree species that were in the area, you know, the carbon density, things of that nature. And then there's a group called the Amazon Conservation Association, which was actually monitoring the change that was going on. And so there's all this great evidence. And so we, we started to produce a story about, you know, what was happening here. And, um, you know, the company tried to shut down the story, but our response was, well, you know, this is all based off the best science. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence here showing what's happening and we're just covering that. And so, you know, we came out with a story, a bunch of other media outlets then covered the story. Activists started doing campaigns around it, started going after like the London Stock Exchange, the D-List's company. And we continue to do this reporting and so over the next um, you know, two plus years. Um, a bunch of stories came out. The Peruvian government um, decided that the plantation was uh, breaking local regulations, so it was illegal. And so, fast forward to 2017, the company was delisted from London Stock Exchange. And so, the reason that was important was it was part of a holding company that had a bunch of other companies that were planning to clear um, nearly 100,000 hectares of forests for oil palm plantations and cacao. And that's all in this very biodiverse area, and so by not being listed, it deprived them of the capital they would have had to sort of do that expansion. And so I think the reason why that story ended up being impactful was there was good data that was based on the best science that was, you know, presented in a way that was that was well visualized. Um, there was a compelling storyline. You had biodiversity. You had local communities. Um, do you have diverse voices and stakeholders? So again, that's, that's a situation where there was sort of, you know, it's like it started out as a bad story that ended up having a positive impact when it comes to the environment.
0: Brett, right. this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. And it's highlighted the power of the intersection between science and storytelling and the incredible effect that this can have on creating a better world. Thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you so much again for inviting me on your on your show and um, also just all the inspiration you provided.
0: But there is still hope where a different future awaits us, where faith unites us to make rainforests a shared spiritual priority, where we teach our communities that rainforests are a sacred trust, where we feed a growing planet without converting rainforests, where we work with companies to ensure their products are deforestation-free, and where we make sure that governments protect forests and the rights of indigenous peoples. This is the future where we do what is right. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Galkusha and Alana Helens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman and Matthew Ernest Filler, is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler.